Chance of scattered thunderstorms this evening. Cloudy after midnight, overnight low down to 54. And rain showers in the morning giving way to possible thunderstorms in the afternoon with a high of 73. This is WJFF Jeffersonville, W233AH Monticello. Support for WJFF Radio Catskill comes from the River Reporter newspaper in Narrowsburg, New York, riverreporter.com. From the Women's Health Center in Holmesdale, Hamlin, Waymart, Carbondale, and Lords Valley in Pennsylvania. Physicians and certified midwives who deliver. The Women's Health Center is a Wayne Memorial Community Health Center. WMH.org. Welcome to Sabrina Artel's Trailer Talk. I'll bring you all kinds of stories from all kinds of people. Whether it's a live public conversation and we're speaking from the kitchen table of my 1965 Beeline Travel Trailer... From the studios or on the streets, please sit back and enjoy the conversation right here this time every week. Our task must be to free ourselves by widening our circle of compassion, to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature and its beauty. Albert Einstein. I'm Sabrina, and I want to welcome you all to my virtual kitchen table of my travel trailer. And I'm very excited to introduce you to Todd Friedman, who is my neighbor. I am in Liberty, New York, in the Catskills, and Todd is in Parksville, but he's really right around the corner. And it's a delight for me to introduce Todd and I want to share that it also makes me feel so good to know that I have a neighbor who is providing sanctuary for animals. Todd is the founder of Arthur's Acres Animal Sanctuary, and he shares that kindness, positivity, and compassion for all living beings is the mission that he has been charged with. Arthur's Acres Animal Sanctuary is a pig rescue. So, Todd, welcome. Well, thank you for thank joining you. me. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. So let's start with how did this evolve? And I mean, I've always been an animal lover. Uh, even as a kid, I've always really, I, I felt like a special connection to animals. And, you know, in growing up, I always was drawn to animals. And that's where I felt most at home with animals and always having a pet. And um, I found myself owning a print shop in New Jersey. And um, I was doing that for 10 years and I was just getting, you know, I was ready to change my life. Something was about it wasn't right. And I started volunteering at a sanctuary um, in upstate New York. And um, I started doing it like once a month. Then I started doing it, you know, twice a month. Then I started doing it, you know, once, uh, once on the weekends. And I started doing it every weekend, Saturday and Sunday. Um, I did that for two years. And, and in doing that in the process, I just realized that, you know, this is what I want to do. And um, I don't want to um, do anything else. So I'm sorry, do you hear that in the background? I do. What is that? Todd, could you get the food away from the cat? The cats are eating dog food. <laughs> so I'm sorry about that. But wait a minute. I just want to insert here that I know because of your incredibly delightful and moving videos, you, you take us right into your home and into the barn and onto the land of Arthur's Acres. So I know that you have a couple of pigs that live in your house. There's three right now. <laughs> three. There's, there's, there's Wilbur, there's Joaquin and Princess in the Kitchen. And then I think we have four cats in here right now and a dog. So there's there's a couple of uh, – so there's Joaquin, 
right there. And now, Princess... doesn't Joaquin have a kind of a reputation? Is he a little He's a tough? brat. Yeah, he's a brat. <laughs> but he's tiny. And there's Princess oh, in the kitchen. Will you share the story of Princess with us? Yeah, sure. So Princess, uh, so I just want to show you. So Wilbur's right on the couch next to me. And Wilbur. Yeah, so please introduce us to your companions, your family, and my neighbors. Well, they're my family. So Wilbur, unfortunately, was dumped at a, uh, a animal shelter in New York City. Now, uh, there is this belief that a micro pig or teacup pig exists where you buy a pig and it's 30 pounds and it's put in your pocketbook. It does not exist. There's no such thing of it, but these breeders keep telling people there are. So there's an epidemic that people are buying pigs and, and they get too big and then they dump them. And so a lot of our animals are from that. So Wilbur was dumped in New York City as you know a young pig because he started getting bigger and you're not allowed to have pigs in New York City. So that was not a great idea or a great decision on their part. Anyway, so we got him from New York City Shelter. And how big is he at this point? He's probably about 160, right, Baboos? You're about 160, 180? <laughs> oh, it depends on before or after lunch. And uh, right? I know that our listeners can't see what I'm seeing right now, but there they are in your living room with pillows and blankets. Oh, yeah. You know, they kind of make themselves at home. They kind of decide, you know, Wilbur's in the house because he was my first pop belly. He was really lonely in the barn. He only spent one night in the barn and it was terrible. Princess, who we rescued from a horrible breeding situation in uh, New Jersey and she was beaten to her until she was pregnant in with her and then their gestation period is short so it's three months three weeks and three days so every four months they get her pregnant and she's on the smaller side so she's 90 pounds which is pretty much the lightest you'll see a healthy pig so she's the smallest pig that you would see that actually is considered a small they call them mini pigs because they're smaller than farm pigs she was a mess when um, I got a call by another sanctuary rancher over Lax, New Jersey, and they asked me to take a piglet. They said, you know, it's the only piglet out of a litter that survived. They called me and we're nursing her. I said, you know, I'm just starting out. I can't nurse an animal over three hours. I'm trying to do everything here. And then usually I, I'm able to say no and I'm able to block it out and not be depressed for the rest of the day. But I called my friend back and I said, well, what's up with the mother? You know, what, will they give up the mother? She's like, what do you mean? I'm like, I could take a mother, you know, you know, I could take a mother. And she's like, well, let me find out. She, he hasn't given her up in 10 years. There's a cat. <laughs> <laughs> he hasn't given her up in 10 years. He's made a lot of money off her and I doubt he'll let her go. I said, we'll find out. And he decided that he would do it, which is so weird. I don't even know why I asked about the mother, you know, it was just random, you know? And she came here and it took, uh, you know, she was a mess. She's blind because she never saw the light of day for 10 years. She's skittish because she was obviously beaten. They called her grandma. If you go near her, she's very skittish, but incredibly sweet. It took about three or four months for her to come up to me and be comfortable with me. And then um, she was living at the barn because she liked very quiet situations. And then one day she walked up the house, pushed in the door and moved in. And that was it. <laughs> you know, I kind of like, if they can make their way up here and they don't have accidents in the house because they're smart, you know, they are instantly potty trained. They don't peer poop where they sleep. They're smarter than dogs. They're the fourth smartest animal where a dog is 14. So they're instantly potty trained. And then Joaquin, a couple of weeks ago, made his way up the stairs, up the ramp. We have ramps to come up to the house. And he just pushed his way in during the day, took a nap during lunch one day, and then goes out and comes and just, you know, he's trying to fit in with these guys. And it's all good, you know, as long as they don't – I wouldn't say tear apart the house because they kind of um, – they rearrange things. They don't do real damage. A lot of blankets everywhere. Seems that they like to 
bury and burrow. They burrow. They, they, you know, they'll nest. And so they do that. And so they're everywhere. You know, Wilbur moved onto the couch and he was hiding being on the couch for a long time. So, well, I didn't know he was on the couch. So he'd go to, I'd go to sleep and then he'd be on the couch and then he'd come down. He wouldn't, he wouldn't be on the couch. I'd never see him on the couch. And then my neighbor stopped by and was looking for me, looked in my window and she says, Oh, that's cute. Wilbur's on the couch. I said, what? So he apparently he was, as soon as I left, he'd go on the couch. So now he just feels comfortable on the couch. So we end up sitting on the floor watching TV while he takes over the whole couch. But Okay, so Todd, what I want to know is what happens if King Carl or <laughs> Morty makes their way up that ramp into your home? We'll have to take out some couches and chairs. And, you know, I, I would have them all into the house if I wanted to. If, if that could happen, you know, I'm telling you, I would move into the barn. I mean, it's, I'm happiest when I'm with pigs. And so it's, it's wonderful. You know, I, I would bring them all into the house. I mean, Carl... I don't know if he'd get through the front door, but we might <laughs> how, have to. How much does Carl weigh? Now, I've met Carl. He's huge. He's 950 pounds, and we had a change. Unfortunately, the barn that burnt down, before it burned down, we had it redone. We had to change the doorways because he was too tall. So he's four feet high. Incredible. He is a and tall about, pig. He's a and giant. And he's, he's about seven feet long and about 950 pounds. But so... And the sweetest animal here, he's literally the only pig or animal i would take an apple and put in his mouth and not risk losing fingers he would chew around your fingers like the most gentle you know the gentle giant he, he's like the definition of the gentle giant and um, how old is king carl he's 12 and unfortunately their lifespan is only 12 to 15 in a good situation now we rescued him from a breeding situation where they were just going to dump him because he was done being the male on the breeding facility and, and he never saw the answer he is a farm pig he never saw the light of day as well so he's blind you know, his optical nerve is too weak and he can't see. And he's about 85% deaf and he can get around the whole farm, go wherever he wants. Uh, they can smell five feet underground. So they are incredibly uh, resourceful. He doesn't bump into walls. If you didn't know him, you would have no idea that he's deaf and blind. And how long has he been with you? Over a year and he's thriving. You know, we have him on a really balanced diet with fruits, vegetables, and grains. And he gets a large amount of CBD oil every day. So we believe in alternative therapies as well as Eastern and Western therapies. So everyone here, uh, if there's issues with them, they'll receive acupuncture, they'll receive Reiki, chiropractic care, laser therapy, uh, CBD oil and nutrients and other, um, we do like turmeric and stuff like that. And we do red light therapy here. So we do everything, you know, okay, anything I'm coming that you, over, Todd, bring I, it I on, bring need, it on. <laughs> I may need some treatments myself. <laughs> they, you know, the chiropractor comes once a month. You know, the Reiki person comes once a week. We'll do whatever we can because the problem is is these animals there's no research so it's really the sanctuaries that are doing groundbreaking work on just trial and error because there's no money in it you know when you take a farm pig or you know and take them to a normal farm vet you know if they have more than a sniffle they'll be like just call them and call means kill so just kill them there's no reason to keep them alive you wouldn't spend money in them and you'll see that when I we take our pigs to Cornell. We use a local vet, Catskill. He's wonderful. He really takes care of us. But in large situations, in large, he doesn't handle uh, on-site. Like if they, we can't take a farm pig to him. So any kind of surgery, a farm pig or major surgery, they go to Cornell. And when I first started going to Cornell about and five so years ago. Cornell is in Ithaca and it's in Ithaca, Cornell and University it's huge. Veterinary Center. And they're amazing. Probably one of the best in the world. And so when we bring an animal there and I've been going there for five years, you know, you go in there and you'd see farm, farm, farm. And that means breeders, dairies, meat, farm, you know, because they have all where they came from on the stalls. And so it was like 80%, you know, where you'd see, 
you know, dairy, meat, blah, blah. And now you go and it's like 50% sanctuary, 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 sanctuary. So we're changing the world. And it's really yeah. wonderful. It is, Todd. So how do you want to see the world change? And included in that is please share with us what you have experienced living with pigs. Well, my dream would be to be unemployed, to not be needed, where the world stopped eating meat because it's not an efficient, healthy, or any food. You know, there's misconceptions of all these new labels of, you know, um, farm to table. You know, and our facility was a farm-to-table facility before we took it over. And so farm-to-table was like, oh, the animals are raised and they are um, humanely slaughtered. That's an oxymoron. There's no such thing as humane slaughter. It doesn't exist. Or that Todd, happy meat, I've heard. Happy meat. They all die in the same slaughterhouse. Now, we find bodies here literally every day and the way he used to kill them here. Now, this is a backyard butcher. This is a farm-to-table facility. They're hammer holes in the head. So the farm that has now become Arthur's Acres Animal Sanctuary was what? A slaughterhouse. You've described that you were... You had the printing business, you left that, you began working with animal sanctuaries, and then you founded your own. And when did you found Arthur's Acres, and what led you to be located where you are right now in Parksville, New York? You know, I was working at another sanctuary, and it just became time that I I wanted to move on and do something else uh, with animals, whether it was my own or work somewhere else or in a different aspect of what I was doing. And so it was like a pipe dream. I'd be on Zillow and other real estate sites, and this property came up because I was looking at stuff, nothing really fit in 2018, in August, I believe it was. And so I, um, I worked with this real estate agent before, so I set up an appointment to see the property. It was about an hour away from where I was, and he was running late, so he messaged me. He goes, I'm running late, but you can go on the property. They've left. There's no one there. You can walk around and do whatever you want to do. So I'm walking around. I get on the property. I'm with my friend Carrie, and she, uh, we see a rooster run by, and then we see a peacock. We're like, that's weird. There's no one here. Why is there animals here? The real estate agent got there and he said, I said, you know, we're seeing animals. He's like, oh, they said there might be some animals that were left behind. I said, what? He goes, yeah, maybe a horse, maybe a pig. I don't know. He said something about that. I said, what? And I'd walked away from him. He's like, where are you going? I said, I'm going to find the animals. So the place was horrible. There was death everywhere. There was dead animals, like chickens laying underneath, you know, just trying to get shelter. And they just died of starvation and heat exhaustion. You could see bones everywhere. And so I walked into a hallway. I heard a noise and I heard the sound of a pig. And I, I walked in this hallway that was riddled with flies and there was, there was water with black stuff in it. And, you know, the, his food was maggot covered. And I see a pig, the most beautiful pig I've ever seen in my life, obviously. And so I just looked at him. I just said, uh, you, uh, you come with me. We're together forever now, man. And what and pig is this? This is Arthur from Arthur's Acres. So now they always tell me their name. So that wasn't like a thought process. I looked at him. I said, you're Arthur. And my, grandfather who was my step-grandfather was Arthur and I had an incredible bond with him and he wasn't my real grandfather and he didn't really have to be as amazing as he was to me but he was he was my I adored him and it literally just came to me in that second and I called him Arthur right away and so the real estate agent's like oh pig I'm like yeah I'm taking this pig he's like what do you mean I'm like get in touch with the owner and tell him I'm taking the pig whether he likes it or not now you can't just take a pig because in it's a federal offense to steal 
a pig, an animal that's being raised for meat. If you steal someone's dog, it's not the same thing. It's like a slap on the wrist, but you steal, it's a federal offense to steal an animal from a, a facility, a meat facility. So he got in touch with him. He agreed to surrender him. And the gun arrest is history. We went back and forth, uh, you know, negotiating on the property. And, and I was nervous because I saw like how much work this place needed. It was a mess. You know, it was, it was an absolute mess. I took Arthur to a friend of mine sanctuary, uh, Mike Sturr in New Jersey. And I say, and I, and I, as I had him, like, could you babysit a pig? He's like, sure. How many people are going to say, yeah, yeah, I'll babysit your pig. And so Mike took amazing care of him. At that time, my dad had a quadruple bypass. I was driving home from the hospital. It was like a month and a half later. And I hadn't heard from them in weeks. And uh, I get a text, which is weird because you would think he would call and said, oh, you got the property. I said, wow, I probably should get some money now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so Todd, thank you for sharing this about how you ended up in Parksville, New York and the Sullivan County Catskills and the inspiration that Arthur the pig, who your sanctuary is named after, has given you. You're a very new sanctuary. Two years old. Right. Just two years old. So what? Is it now that you have your own sanctuary and how many, how many pigs do you have in the sanctuary at this? Uh, we have 25 on site. We have one that's coming to us in a couple of weeks, a baby. And we're always working on new rescues. We're building a new barn right now because our barn burnt down last year. So we're in the process of finalizing that. We have 50 animals here total. We have chickens, ducks, cats, and a dog. So we have 50 plus animals at any one time. We grew a lot. You know, it goes in spurts where we don't take in animals because we are working on, we got to get this barn built, you know, and we'll never take an animal in that jeopardizes the animals we are already cared for. So financially, physically, we cannot take an animal in that's going to jeopardize the care that we are giving other animals. So right now it's just me and I have someone help me, a special needs person that lives here, Todd. He's also Todd, Todd too. Um, And he's wonderful and he lives on the property and he helps me out and we have some volunteers, but it's basically me and him from day to day. What have you discovered in having your sanctuary in terms of a possible transformation of a person who is exposed to the education you provide and with their relationships with some of the animals that are now the residents of the sanctuary? Well, I get messages every day multiple times a day that people have changed the way they eat because of, of me showcasing them, whether it's online, whether them visiting in person, but showcasing their individual personalities. You know, I put a video out every day. I put a picture out every day and I go live almost every day. So people see the interactions. So um, my education basically stems from showing them that they have individual personalities. The animals want to live, you know, whether it's a chicken, whether it's a pig, we focus on pigs because I feel it's really important to focus on very specific so we can really further the, the lifespan of these animals and quality of life for them. They're just incredible. They're as smart as a four-year-old child. They're the four smartest animal on the planet. They love, they know their names. We have a video that went viral and has millions of views because I literally called a pig by her name. She couldn't see me. She's around the corner. There was, you know, 15 pigs feeding in a field. And I said, Katniss, Katniss. She came around the corner herself and came to me. It went viral. It blows my mind that people are so 
surprised that a pig knows their name. They're brilliant. We do enrichment with them. We have paintings in their stalls. We play music 24 hours a day for them because it's like locking. It would be like putting a four-year-old kid in, in a stall with no stimulation. They would go crazy. So we're, we, they like stimulation. They love, they grieve when someone passes. It's beautiful. They're just, they're incredibly intelligent, smart, beautiful, loving animals. So somebody might say, but there's so much other suffering. So how do you frame it for people who come to you either virtually or in person? I mean, I believe the world should be vegan. I don't believe that anything needs to suffer for our existence. That's, that's a, a, a scam. We're not cavemen anymore. Um, our bodies aren't built to process meat or dairy. And, but these marketing companies sell you that you need it. You know, the whole calcium myth with cows and stuff like that. It's all just a big myth. Well, I think, you know, I I talk about peace begins with me, peace begins with you, peace begins on your plate. I talk about that all the time, you know, and so it's just the peace. And and with an animal, you know, that can really, their payback is loving you unconditionally, you know, and so I don't need anything from them. I just want to take care of them because I feel that they have a voice. It's not being heard. I hate when people say they're voiceless. They're not voiceless in any way, shape or form. They just need to people to listen because you've come here at four o'clock during feeding time you'll know that they're not voiceless oh, right. but that they um, have opinions and needs they, and uh, as you said they're individuals and uh, people there needs to be people like me who who fight for their rights to live without without being tortured we have six pigs here that were being burned for medical testing so their backs have 18 burns on them which they took stainless steel rods and burned their backs 18 times unnecessary in today's scientific and technological world, but it still happens. And so we need to fight for them, whether it's being slaughtered in a truck, you know, they can transport a pig to slaughter for 36 hours without food or water. And that's legal. And the points that you're bringing up are so important because it's, it's the way that we treat them also reflects on the way we treat each other. I mean, that there is not a separation. Oh, no, not at all. I mean, it's just, you, you, you need to have compassion for everything. You know, whether it's a pig, whether it's a yeah. person, whether it's a tree, you know, it just, you know, it's just our compassion has dissipated incredibly lately. How has the pandemic impacted you since before the pandemic, you would have educational tours and visits and uh, those kinds of things. So I'm just wondering if you can address what your sanctuary and sanctuaries face during COVID-19. Well, I mean, financially is the biggest part of it. You know, people are losing their jobs at, you know, a record number. It's crazy. And I feel terrible, but we are a nonprofit. We don't take, there's no one that takes a salary. You know, we survive off of donations alone. And so it's hard because we're asking for donations to help feed and care for these animals when people are out there starving themselves. They're losing their jobs. They're losing their homes. They're losing their, their automobiles. You know, they, they can't pay medical bills, but we still need to survive as well. And we have wonderful people that do it, but people drop out every day and you can't get mad because I, and I always say people are like, I'm so sorry. I'm like, do not apologize. Take care of yourself, you know? And so, um, you know, we do tours. We stopped doing tours. We started again, then we stopped again because it started getting bad. So tours is, is one way we generate income. And we'd never, it's a suggested donation. If you can't afford not to come, we don't want that to be the reason you don't come because I want everybody to come here and be educated. So the upswing is that I go live almost every day. I go live six days a week. And that I'll go live on Instagram and Facebook at the same time. 
So I can educate people that way. So my main thing is to educate and get the message out there of compassion. Yes. And Todd, you do that so well. I have to say that for me, it's this incredible reality to tune into your live feeds, to your videos, and to follow the lives of the animals on the farm, your pig family, animal family on the farm. And I think one of the recent ones that really struck me is this relationship between Louie and Marty. (laughs) Wait, wait, wait. It gets better. You got a second? Okay, yes. Eve moved in too. (laughs) Okay, so. And that's so funny because I've gotten like five messages today because of that. It's the craziest thing in the world. And he's thriving because of it. He's thriving. Okay, so quickly because we are running out of time, but. Who's Louie? I see him. Louie was, a, Louis was, I got him from Allenville. It was a family that was never supposed to have a pig. So Louie, uh, we got him from Allenville. It was a family that was not allowed to have pigs. It was, it's a rule in the town. And fortunately, they fed him just about to death. So he's morbidly obese, hadn't walked in months. Our vet went there to do an exam on him and called me. He's like, you got to come pick up this pig. He's dying. We picked up Louie. Um, you know, he walked for a couple of days and then went down and hasn't walked in a couple of months. And we're doing a lot of therapies with him and getting him. He's receiving the best of the best. And uh, we really feel that he's only two and a half years old, that he will walk again very soon. And the other night, uh, about a week ago, Morty, our little tractor pig who we got locally as well, another obese boy broke into, <laughs> I'm going to cry, broke into Louis Stahl and started sleeping with him. I didn't even know he was there. And so Morty uh, started sleeping with him, and we found that Louie moving around a little more. And then uh, yesterday morning, I went in because I flip Louie all the time so he doesn't get pneumonia. And, you know, and we clean him and, and you know, feed him. And and, uh, and I someone started yelling at me, and it was Eve. And Eve's in there now, too. So Eve and, – and they're in, like, his little stall, and I'm not – and he's driving because I'll go in the morning – and Louie won't be in the same position he was the night before, so he's moving, which is awesome. So whatever, and these pigs know, man, they know it's so cool, and they know he needed them, and they showed up, and it's awesome. And he's thriving. He's doing awesome. He's way more animated than he has been, and we're so happy. He's lost so much weight. He was double his normal weight, what he should be. Which is what? What are we talking about? I mean, he was probably, he was close to 300 pounds. He should be about 120. Hmm. Well, these are beautiful stories and reminders of how we are all here together, all connected. And the more kindness we can share with each other, the better. 100%. The better everything will be. I'm just wondering if there's anything you want to take us out with. I mean, just, you know, have compassion. That's all I ask is, you know, have compassion for animals, for people, uh, for the planet. You know, that's really, you know, uh, I mean, I know it's not everybody's in agree, but go vegan, man. Go vegan. Love animals. There's no reason to eat them. You can't love an animal and eat it too. Thank you so much, Todd. Peace, love, and pigs. (laughs) peace love and pigs thank you so much i've been speaking with todd friedman who is the founder of arthur's acres animal sanctuary in parksville new york in the catskills and i encourage you all to visit arthur's acres animal sanctuary.org meet the animals there you can 
sponsor, Katniss or Prim or Rue or King Carl, tune in to Todd's live videos that are daily events that I really look forward to and uh, give, give me so much every day. So thank you, Todd, for everything that you do. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. You're welcome. The animals of the world exist for their own reasons. They were not made for humans any more than black people were made for white or women created for men. Animals can communicate quite well, and they do. And generally speaking, they are ignored. Alice Walker. The greatness of a nation and its moral progress can be judged by the way its animals are treated. Mahatma Gandhi. From the kitchen table, out on the road, I'm Sabrina Artell. Thanks for joining me for Sabrina Artell's Trailer Talk. The music for the show, Patti Smith, People Have the Power. Trailer Talk is produced by Sabrina Artell. For more information, please visit trailertalk.net. Special thanks to WJFF Radio Catskill and the numerous people who have donated their time, resources, and conversations to make Trailer Talk possible. Thank you all who joined me in these conversations. I'm Sabrina Artell. Safe travels. Radio Catskill's fabulous online auction. Preview the exciting auction items now. So many generous businesses and organizations have donated to the fabulous online auction, including River Family Wellness, Calicoon Hills, Sullivan County Dramatic Workshop, La Salumina, Forthright Cider and Mead. Register to bid. Go to wjffradio.org. Bid. Win. Support. Radio Catskill. Welcome to Sabrina Artel's Trailer Talk. I'll bring you all kinds of stories from all kinds of people. Whether it's a live public conversation and we're speaking from the kitchen table of my 1965 Beeline Travel Trailer, from the studios or on the streets, please sit back and enjoy the conversation right here this time every week. My name is Grant Gunslinger. I'm the chef owner of Settlers Inn in Holly, Pennsylvania, which is a, a historic small boutique hotel in the upper Delaware River region of Pennsylvania. Grant, how did you end up here in this town? My short story is, as a young boy, I came up with my parents who had a house on Lake Bowen Pawpack. So did my grandparents from very early on. So I was a summer lake brat. And although I have six brothers and sisters, I'm the only one who didn't go home. So I ended up here and, of course, met my wife, Jeannie, who was from the community. And uh, we pitched our tents, so to speak, and started our professional life in the community. I'm interested to learn from you what you were looking for then that was the impetus or the catalyst for what you've created in in this town. The interest when we moved here permanently after I graduated from college, we rented a rather large organic farm. And as a young couple with children, uh, we're interested in a sustainable lifestyle and organic farming. So we began with that and augmented our farm life by working in the hospitality industry. That eventually led to my interest in farm-to-table cooking, knowing where your food comes from, 
local sourcing, and so our restaurant for the last 35 years has been a farm-to-table restaurant, and that's been my abiding interest in the community. So you began as a young adult, Grant, you've just been sharing with us with living on an organic farm, and that began this journey for you into this experimentation and expertise with local agriculture, with organic farming and food, and and that has led you to your business in hospitality and with businesses in the town that you live in. What has this journey been then for you with organic farming, food, and and the food business? I think for me, uh, the interest has been and developed that although I'm a chef, and I could have been a chef, plain and simple. The enrichment of being a chef that knows the farmers and speaks to them and the people who grow and produce the food, and that relationship, without that, I don't think I would have continued for this length of time, and that has been and still is a very enriching and driving experience. A lot of the new things that I'm involved with now, we now have two restaurants, a local coffee shop. We have a specialty food store specializing in representing local foods. It has taken me from one place to another, but the constant has been the sense of relationship and community in the food region that we have, which, of course, uh, has grown from a few farmers to now a very rich and full experience of artisan cheesemakers, farmers, beef producers, lamb producers. So it has really come into its own, which is energizing in its own right. And as you're referring to this region, we're in Holly, Pennsylvania, your hometown, what encompasses this region when you're thinking about the food that grows and is produced? What is unique about this region? I think in terms of circles, so I don't think in terms of state borders, uh, Pennsylvania versus New York or New Jersey, I think in terms of concentric circles close to where I'm located. So the primary circle is 50 miles. So I'm very interested in finding and establishing relationships with all within that 50-mile circle that I can represent. It's less about me as a chef than it is me representing the wonderful things that are grown and produced. Beyond 50 miles would be a 100-mile circle. 200-mile circle is still within reason for some things, particularly in the sustainable organic movement. There are a lot of small family farms. Our restaurant, our flagship Settlers Inn, has as our mission statement for 35 years helping support small family farming in our region, which not only helps farming, but it helps the quality of life because I drive by those beautiful farms every single day. And that viewscape is part of what they've given me as well as the food. So there's a very holistic approach, I think, in this whole process that has kept my interest. Why is that significant for you to have a holistic approach? I think that the long term is that whole circle and within circle approach is the only way to make things sustainable. If I as a chef one year buy from a farmer and then next year decide not to, that interrupts the flow of food and the commitment of mine and the commitment of the farmer. And it's important that that continuity and that depth of relationship takes place because that's long-term sustainability. And that's what builds. 
It's not sustainable for there to be one farm-to-table chef. It's sustainable when the preponderance of all of the eating establishments are farm-to-table because then the support is there to encourage more people to grow and produce within the region. And thinking about these relationships that you have with the growers and producers, with the farmers, your, as you said, your flagship restaurant here in the community is the Settler's Inn, and you have been making food. You have been the chef for 35 years at the location. So do you still have relationships with some of the original growers or producers, and how does that evolve? The short answer is yes, we still have relationships. I, of course, because I'm aging ungracefully, um, (laughs) have turned a lot of the cooking over to younger chefs. So the role that I believe that I have now is helping young chefs learn about farm-to-table relationships and how to cook within that and those kind of things. I have a great number of growers and producers that I have known for the last 35 years, and we're just great friends. And we also are great, passionate people that continue to worry about how to make the food system more sustainable and more long-term. And that's kind of the interest right now is in a within-circle food hub of how to get the food from where it's grown and produced to where it's consumed, whether it's a restaurant, a school, a government agency, an institution, other restaurants. Expanding that is the puzzle and getting the food from here to there so everybody isn't running around. Remember, we're a rural region, so we're rich in what we have, but you can't go 40 miles to get maple syrup and then go 30 miles the other way to get a piece of cheese. Farmer's markets are great, but there needs to be a building beyond that to help get the food from where it's grown and produced to where it's consumed. What are you envisioning then to make that happen? Well, I think it takes every segment from the farmers, farmers markets, restaurants, to institutions, for instance, schools. The schools should be turning their mind and their pocketbook to locally raised food. The children are going to school, they're from the community, so there's just a lot about that and what they can learn and what they can be exposed to is just so rich. So the work that I see in the near future is those kind of things. Um, Senior citizen centers. um, We've been recently talking to the county prison that there is just a lot that could be done that could make things better. But within that puzzle is all of these problems. Well, who's going to drive around and pick everything up? Right now, everybody's running around. We're waving at each other as we drive by, going this way, going that way. And some days aren't so positive for farmers' markets. And so there's a maturity that has to happen, and every player has the distributor, the farmer, the restaurant tour, the school district. Everybody has to change their mindset and try to figure out the answer to the puzzles. Grant, why do you think food, it seems to be the central point for you, and you describe these concentric circles, but why do you think that is? And what intersects somehow or could be interlocks with these concentric circles that you've described? Well, what's interesting now is my life has been in food, so it's easy for me to think that way, but what's interesting now, it's really interesting to go to a county commissioner's meeting and have them talking about it. And food is a very nurturing thing. It's nurturing to get together with people and eat it, to talk about it, to drive around. Um, 
People probably see me in my little Mini Cooper driving around from here to there picking up cheese and all of those things. It's nurturing. It makes people feel good. And the quality of what we are doing now is very high. We're getting recognized from without our region for the quality of what people are doing here. And so those are the kind of things that I think make it a very rich experience. And what are some of the examples of food that is growing here that you would cook with that you look forward to going to the farm or the producer because it anchors you in this community, in this location? Ironically here, because we're in a mountain, very diverse climate that is full of little microclimates. You have specialties of produce, and the things that I've enjoyed, for instance, is that a lot of the produce farmers, for instance, specialize in Asian produce, and I have a historical background in that and a great interest, so it's ironic that my next-door neighbors are growing things that on my trips to China from years ago spark my memory, so it's energizing that way. The other thing is the maturity. Thirty years ago, there was one artisan cheesemaker that I was buying from. Now I'm buying from nine. Have their specialties, whether it's Hanjus and their mozzarella or the Amish and their extra sharp raw milk cheddars or whatever. The breadth of the food is uh, very, very intriguing to me. The maturity of the market of the breadbasket, if you will, is so, so much different. We're supporting, I believe it's 13 farmers markets in the region right now, where when I started at my restaurant, there weren't any. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. it's just, there's a lot going on. And when you see the farmer's market and the social commerce that takes place at farmer's market, not the buying and the selling, but the social commerce of so-and-so coming every Friday to Holly to get Marsh's bread. Those are the kind of things that are the long-term sustainability and the enrichment factor, the, the fun of that social commerce, not the money commerce. So that social commerce, so, so a kind of a civic ecology yes. that you're addressing, how does that translate? Because as you're talking about your interest, your commitment to local food production, to farming, to organic produce, and to the the making of food, as a chef for many years, as having businesses that are sharing these foods with people in the community, what is the significance of this kind of social commerce that you're describing happens when people go to a farmer's market or they learn about food that comes from where they are sitting and eating? I think that that's part of the interest that now with schools for interest, when they had someone that interviewed children at a school, an elementary school, and most of the people, the children, did not know where potatoes came from. They did not know they grew in the ground, for crying out loud. So there's a lot of things that need to start happening there. There's the other aspects of food can be a lifting experience. I'm interested right now with some groups that working together on is food waste. Farmers grow things. They don't sell everything at the farmer's market. Is how are we going to handle excess and prepare it and perhaps give it the food pantries or whatever. It's something that you see in urban areas, but in a rural area you do not see. And that is a puzzle that could be extremely beneficial in the community. Nobody solved it yet. Part of the social commerce that I experience when I go around or 
go to farmers markets is that somebody is going to think of the solution. Everybody is getting together. There's a buzz about food hubs and food movement and all of these things. Some bright mind is going to say, oh, here's the way we're going to solve that for the community. I'm encouraged because that buzz of social commerce is going to bring up the solutions, how we get the food around, how we maximize the return for the farmers, how we take care of waste, how we help feed the needy. There's a lot. There's a lot. But it's going to come out of all of that social commerce somehow. The social commerce that you're addressing and your entrance is through food. That's what you're sharing with us. So this becomes the entry point for many issues. And and also I'm interested in how, since you're in the hospitality business and food is your entry point to share with people and community, I'm interested in you sharing with us why that is and why is it that you have engaged your entire adult life in celebrating this community where, where we are right now in Holly, Pennsylvania. Well, being in the hospitality business You have the great pleasure of seeing and speaking to a lot of different people. And people that come, for instance, to my restaurant, they're interested in where their food comes from. So my obligation and my pleasure is to tell the story behind the food. Every restaurant uses cheddar cheese, but the story of LaRaysville cheese and how they saved the community with their cheese operation is just, I could tell that story Every day. Well, I want to hear this story. A dairy cooperative in the north was going out of business, and they decided to pull out. And the Amish farmers got together, and they said, you know what? We need to keep going. And so one of them stepped forward and went and learned cheesemaking and said, don't give up dairy farming. Bring your dairy to me, and we're going to make the traditional Amish cheeses of where we came from, and now they are very successful, and I think they support 40 farms with that operation. So that's a story, and they do traditional things, which I could tell those stories too, but uh, that are just meaningful. Their cheese is terrific. Their five-year raw milk cheddar is out of this world. So there's that, there's that part. That So in my hospitality life at our store, I, at the hotels, I like my folks to tell those stories because the customers are asking the questions. And that's an enrichment as well that will pay back because those people will remember, oh, they had something at Settlers or something at Glass Wine Bar, and oh, they'll go to my market and they'll buy that product from Farmer X. There's a lot in that response, and that sounds a little convoluted, but that story and the telling of it, the hospitality industry, can play a big part of telling that story to visitors, a bunch of whom will be just like me, who came from somewhere else, settled here, and then becomes part of the community. I mean, that's been a wave that's been going on in our region. A great pleasure is to see a lot of the people that have settled in our region have settled here because of those quality of life things. The food, the small farming communities, the viewscapes, 
all of those things. So they settled for the same reason I came, the same reason my grandfather chose to come up. So there's there's yes. that, that that wave of what draws people, which hasn't changed that much. What does draw people here? I would love to hear your story because you stayed. You spent time here as a boy and you decided to live here full time to make this your life. And so what is it? And also it seems to me with what you're sharing with us that what you're doing is about the celebration of your home, of the place that you live and the gateway for you is food. What is it for somebody who hasn't been here? Well, I, I think somewhat it's the memory of from when you're young of just remembering coming and to this beautiful area for outdoor recreation, hiking, walking, all of the different things that when I was young. So moving here is sort of reliving those visual memories. And every day, I, my wife and I say, we live in a great place. We just live in a great place of outdoor wonder, wonderful, uh, sustainable practices. They're blooming. Yes, it's a rural way of life. Yes, it's seasonal. has all of those economic consequences, but we've been fortunate that we've been able in the hospitality industry to do that year-round. I remember when we opened 35 years ago, one of the things was, okay, we're going to be open every single day, 365 days a year, and there were days when no one came in the door. <laughs> But that, that idea of being the small hotel for the community is a statement. It's not just a business plan. It's a statement that everybody knows, okay, I can go there to the inn for dinner. My relatives, when they visit, can stay there. So there's those kind of things. So that continues to draw me. And again, the stories that you can tell of your life living here to others is a lot of good memories. There's a lot of good hikes that have been taken. My wife right now is in part of a bike group and they go biking all over the place, all of that. So there's those enriching things that it's in our backyard. And there are challenges too, though, to being in a small town, in a rural community. <laughs> it seems that with your commitment to local food, production and farming, that this is a way to seek out also a kind of sustainability, a kind of local economy that can grow, because there are so many complexities with small rural towns throughout the country. Yes, and here because we are a very seasonal-based economy and a tourism-based economy, which has its positives, also has its negatives. But to make sustainability is economic sustainability, not just quality of life. And a lot of small farmers will tell you it's hard to go to three or four farmers markets a week and some days bring home $12 after standing there chatting with people for three hours. Mm -hmm. There is a bigger picture that is, I don't know if the word is serious, but it is definitely economic to figure out how to make that a livable situation for everybody involved. Mm -hmm. And that is a struggle in this community, sure. Grant, what are some of the, you were talking about the stories that, that connect customers to the food they're eating to this location here in Holly, Pennsylvania. What are some, I'd like to hear some more of those stories. Yeah, at Settlers Inn, um, we have pretty extensive gardens, which I, I refer to as 
visual pleasure gardens with a purpose. And so a lot of our flowers and herbs that are planted for visual pleasure, for weddings and those kind of things, serve a purpose. I think we have probably 30 kinds of edible flowers that we pick from and those kind of things. And so our connection on property is that kind of thing. I don't pretend as a chef, when I say farm to table, I don't pretend I grow every green bean and every money out of your mind. (laughs) I have a very busy restaurant. So I rely on my stalwarts in the farming community to flush out the things that I have. And I concentrate on the things here that add value to my customers. So the visual part of it is very important, the sight, the sound, components of of things. So I have my smokehouse in the backyard, you know, and all all of those things that are part of the food experience that, that we do is pretty important. Relationships with growers and producers are just, it's a constant learning and growing experience. I have some friends and farmers, John Krasinski from over the other side of the Delaware. He's been my friend and farmer friend for 35 years. We did his daughter's wedding. We've done parties at his farm for people. And there's a richness there and a fun there. And in the human experience, everybody is vastly different. So to have a relationship and go find fun, for instance, I mentioned uh, LaRaysville cheese, my friend Jim Amory. um, They're very traditional, very, very strict. So they use wood rakes. They're not allowed to be present if any inoculations are in the room. or any, They're very dedicated to what they produce. And so those enriching stories, is, they're, they're just terrific stuff. What are some of your delights? Growing season, perhaps it was a fruit or a vegetable or something that you wait for and you have a connection with. Well, I enjoy seasonality, and I enjoy things that come quickly and directly from the earth or from around me. So we have a long-standing relationship with uh, the oldest trout hatchery in the United States in Blooming Grove, and it's not a pen hatchery. It's a mountain stream hatchery, so there's a terrific story there. So I love that getting fresh trout daily, which brings me memories of when I was young fishing where we would catch the fish and pan fry them for breakfast with eggs and all, all of those things are part of what make you up. So, And how long has that trout hatchery been there? 130 years or something like that. Yeah, there's just great stories that way, but I have a few foragers now uh, that do fiddlehead ferns and ramps and those kind of things. Um, I had a housekeeper who was a dear friend of mine at, at the hotel that first introduced me to cooking with ramps. She was from West Virginia. One of the stories she told was she used to sneak out with her uncle during ramp season to pick ramps but she was regularly sent home from school because if you went to school with ramp breath, <laughs> you were not allowed to stay in school when you were in elementary school. So oh. she gave me a bunch of recipes from West Virginia 
Uh, so the, I had never <laughs> even heard of ramps until I came to upstate New York, and they're wild leeks, yeah. and they have a very short growing season, yeah. and they're not anything like the cultivated leeks. Yeah, that so I the, knew it's about. just fun stuff. So part of that now is every spring ramp season, where I used to pick her a big bouquet of ramps uh, for her. She wrote me a poem ode to ramps. <laughs> she was a lovely poet. But anyway, so those stories. So <laughs> My favorite foods are the foods that have the best stories, mm-hmm. I guess what I'm trying yes. to say. I'm not tied to this or to that or to spring or to summer, although there is a richness, there's a rich newness to spring and there's a full richness to fall, that it's hard to compete with all of the great stuff, those periods. Summer's great. But there's a richness in the fall, in harvest, and in all of those things. There's a new richness in spring when you're seeing all of these things coming out of the woods or from farms and everything. So that's what I tie to my favorite part of things. And Grant, you mentioned that you grow here at the Settlers in 30 or something edible flowers. What are some of those edible flowers? Oh my goodness. Um, There's a lot of edible flowers. There's standard things like nasturtiums, but... Anis hyssop, uh, chrysanthemum, there is uh, calendula, which you dry the petals and it gives you stains, rice of saffron type color. Mm. So there's a lot of Chinese garlic chives, oh my goodness, wax begonias. There's a lot of things that you see visually that are also edible. Scarlet runner beans. So when you look at my gardens, they look a little messy sometimes, but that's because I've got stuff all over that I need to use right. <laughs> in the kitchen or whatever. So there's a, there's a lot. I, and of course, part of being a chef, if you're into farm to table and those kind of things, is all of the interns you get teaching them what a f- edible flower is, is an enriching experience, yes, if absolutely. a little weird. <laughs> absolutely. So it's, it's that kind of thing. Plus the visuals of edible flowers, um, you know, because we do a lot of weddings and special events. There's a lot of that that goes on, too, which is fun. A pleasure in where we live, and I don't know if this is statistically a fact, but that our region has more small towns than anywhere in the United States like towns of under 500 or 100 or 50. You drive a mile and you're in a new small rural town that has its history, and this area is full of amazing history, which is another thing that is rich for me, not just the natural wonder, but you know, research the Pennamite War between Pennsylvania and Connecticut, where they were fighting over where we're sitting, <laughs> you know, and those kind of stories that are also enriching So there's a multi-dimension to this region which is worth exploring, whether it's food, history, uh, or small communities. Thank you. Thank you so much, Grant. My name is Grant Genslinger. We are at Settlers Inn in Hawley, Pennsylvania, a historic small hotel in Wayne County, Pennsylvania, in the upper Delaware River region. From the kitchen table, out on the road, I'm Sabrina Artell. Thanks for joining me for Sabrina Artel's Trailer Talk. The music for the show, Patti Smith, People Have the Power. Trailer Talk is produced by Sabrina Artel. For more information, please visit trailertalk.net. Special thanks to WJFF Radio Catskill and the numerous people who have donated their time, resources, and conversations to make Trailer Talk possible. Thank you all who joined me in these conversations. I'm Sabrina Artel. Safe travels.
WJFF Jeffersonville, W233AH Monticello. For 50 years, NPR has brought you perspective on the news, the big picture, the crucial context. Public radio is also a place for perspectives you might not hear anywhere else. 50 years from now, when people are wondering what happened with the Minneapolis uprisings of 2020, they can literally come back to these boards and learn the entire history just from what's painted here. Listen to NPR and hear every voice. Radio Catskill, your NPR station for the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania. Support comes from the Law Office of John Ferrara in Monticello, providing legal services in the areas of matrimonial and family law and criminal defense. John.Ferrara557 at gmail.com. Support comes from the Vintage House on Main Street, Jeffersonville, featuring eclectic furnishings, clothing, antiques, records, and books in a charming 19th century house. VintageHouseJVille.com and on Instagram at VintageHouseJVille. You're listening to the Retro Cocktail Hour. 